Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Charles Baxter, author of the craft book Wonderlands, Essays on the Life of Literature. The great thing about fiction is that it's one place where you can retrieve some of those very things that you've lost. The the person who's not in your life anymore, either because that person has died or has disappeared from your life, you can bring that person back. We'll be back with Charles Baxter after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is essayist, poet, and fiction writer Charles Baxter. 
He has written six novels, including The Feast of Love, which was nominated for the National Book Award, First Light, The Soul Thief, and The Sun Collective. His short story collections include Believers, There's Something I Want You to Do, and Through the Safety Net, among others. He has written and edited several books on the craft of fiction, including The Art of Subtext, Burning Down the House, and Bringing the Devil to His Knees. His new craft book, Wonderlands, Essays on the Life of Literature, include thoughts on a lifetime of writing, content from craft lectures he gave throughout his career, and wisdom and reflection on what makes fiction work. We began the discussion with Charles Baxter talking about Wonderlands, the concept, and the title. I had decided to teach a seminar to my writing students in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. And I had become interested in those days in uh, stories and novels that um, depend more on atmosphere than on plot. Uh, And so I decided that I would teach some gothic stories, some comedies, and um, among these Stories and novels were Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, uh, which everybody has read, and Alice Munro's Child's Play, and uh, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, among among others. Also, we we did some Daphne du Maurier stories, including The Birds, which everybody knows about from the Hitchcock movie. And as we went along during the semester, um, my students and I began to notice certain features of these stories and novels. And I can't remember whether it, it was I who said, you know, these are wonderlands. Or maybe it may have been one of my students or a number of them uh, possibly Sally Franzen, who is now a successful novelist uh, herself, who said that these were wonderlands and that they had certain features all in common. And so as the weeks went by, we began to figure out how it was that uh, you could um, come to define a wonderland. And that was around the time also that Jordan Peele's movie Get Out was released. And the people in the workshop who had seen the movie came into class and said, you've got to see this film. It's a wonderland. Um, and I think that's how it it got started. Um, if, if your li- listeners are interested, I can enumerate some of the features of Wonderlands. Um, it's almost always a place that is somewhere near what we would call reality adjacent to it. Uh, and it is easy to get into, but hard to get out of. This is a feature particularly of Murakami's Wonderlands, but uh, I've come to call it the Hotel California a feature of Wonderlands. You can check in anytime you want, but you can never leave. And once you're there, uh, things happen according to a logic which you can't quite discern. Uh, and uh, there are... Uh, there are no wise uncles or aunts who will tell you why things happen in the way they do. They just happen in a certain way. Uh, and it's as if it's as if objects in this world are in some sense looking at you, uh, or I should say looking at the protagonist of the story. And sometimes these wonderlands are gendered. In, in movies, uh, Fight Club is a gendered wonderland for men. 
and the black swan which is about ballet is a sort of gendered wonderland for women uh i don't want to go on too long and become tiresome on this subject uh i i just felt eventually that there is something in the nature of fiction and of dreaming that makes wonderlands important to think about. That is, whenever we read fiction, there's a good chance we may be entering a wonderland. One of the examples you say in your chapter on wonderlands, you say, you basically say setting is as alive as the characters are more so. And, you know, these these titles you just mentioned, um, you talk about in the essay, you also talk, you mentioned The House of Usher uh, by Edgar Allan Poe, which was made into a movie with Vincent Price. And <laughs> I was, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, in seventh grade, they showed us The House of Usher. And in eighth grade, they showed us The Pit and the Pendulum and their old black and white <laughs> movies with yeah. um, Vincent Price. But we didn't have the context that you're talking about. And I think I just walked away as a 12-year-old, just kind of traumatized and terrorized mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. why are they showing this during an assembly? <laughs> so I guess my question in all that is like, what are we meant to get out of it as as writers and readers or as we think about our craft? What What does it have to offer us? When we read fiction, I think some of our deepest emotions are on the line. Uh, One of those emotions would be love or desire, things that we want. Uh, There are a lot of novels and stories about people who want to get rich, novels and stories about people who want to become famous. and countless novels about people who are searching for love. But when you were uh, in seventh grade watching those movies, what you were seeing was another aspect of writing and storytelling, which is that these stories want to uh, tell us about the things that we fear. Uh, The the kinds of people, the kinds of settings, the kinds of actions that we worry about, sometimes that we can't even talk about. Uh, And, you know, fears, the things that we are tempted, not tempted, things that we really want to avoid, things that we're scared of, go into fiction, and usually we have enough distance from it so that we can be briefly scared (laughs) and manage by being briefly scared to to, uh, get some control over those fears. Uh, So I I think actually... Being scared by a movie or or by a story is is a is a kind of adaptive maneuver. It's it's a way of um, experiencing something so that you can overcome it. And is that a microcosm of why we read and write? You know, I I think there are so many different reasons why we read and write, but that certainly is one of them. Um, It was for me. It was for me. Um, I'm writing an essay now about strangers, and I think that I started writing... No, I shouldn't say that. I started reading stories and novels when I was a teenager because I felt that in real life I I was strange and weird and I was being teased and bullied and I needed a refuge and I needed a place where my strangeness was 
not so strange where where I would be welcome. That's so that's it's one of the reasons I started reading. Uh, I can't remember really being a an enthusiastic reader before I was a teenager and before I started to be bullied. But my uh, love for reading uh, had something to do with my growing sense of my own weirdness. And so this essay you're writing about strangers, are you coming to any new realizations about that? A, A couple of new ones that... Actually, I hadn't thought about very much before. One being that if you're in your fiction, if you're building a world and the world is complicated, it often helps, first of all, to have an occasion at the beginning of the story or novel when all of the characters are gathered in one place so that the reader can see them all together. But the other thing that's really important for stories like that is to have a visitor or a stranger show up. Uh, Because whatever is going on in that world has to be explained to the visitor, to the stranger, and thereby the the visitor becomes the reader's proxy. Uh, I I call it the reader's ambassador. Uh, And the reader's ambassador does not have to be a particularly well-rounded or interesting character. The, the visitor is simply there to lead us into the world that we're going to see in the novel or the story. And, and, and the examples I could use are in a novel and movie that lots of people have read or seen, The Godfather. At the beginning of The Godfather, you have the whole Corleone family, and they're gathered together for uh, Connie's wedding. But for the movie and for the purposes of that plot, the important, the important person is Kay Adams, who is Michael's girlfriend and who doesn't know anything about the Corleone family. And as things are explained to her, they are also explained to us. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, there are a lot of other examples of this. Um, at the beginning of Wuthering Heights, for example, there's a character named Lockwood. Nobody remembers Lockwood. Everybody remembers Heathcliff and Kathy. But Lockwood is the person who has arrived at Wuthering Heights. And things have to be explained to him about this strange place. Um, and I think Nick Carraway functions that way in Gatsby. And I sort of feel it's one of those obvious things that everybody recognizes, but it hasn't been talked about very much. So you've spent so long writing essays about fiction and craft, and I'm wondering how you keep finding new things. Uh, I think... All of my essays about reading and craft, or at least the ones that I've written in the last, let's say, eight to ten years, which are now collected in Wonderland, all of them arise from a problem that became a kind of emotional problem for me. It's not just a writing problem. It's a a problem in life which also has ramifications in the way that we write stories. Uh, just for an example, there's an essay, it's a lead-off essay in Wonderlands called The Request Moment. And that essay rose because I began to notice that at the beginning of a, a lot of Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, Macbeth, King Lear, the plot is um, started by one character asking another character or the group of characters to do something. And to put it, and there's a condition on it and a proof. Um, And that 
arose also not because of the plays I had seen or the books I had read, but because in my own life, whenever I got home from school, my mother was always there to ask me to do something. So I, and I began to think of what it meant when someone says, there's something I want you to do. And a timer is set, a story clock is set. There's something I want you to do, and I want you to do it by the end of the day. And there's a condition on it, which is there's something I want you to do. I want you to do it by the end of the day, and you'll do it if you love me. And I thought, wow, that's <laughs> that's a real generator of stories. And and there are other things in the book that are like that. Uh, and, and now that I've lived as long as I have. I've begun to notice things that I got used to when I was young that have disappeared. And so I, I, I wrote an essay called Things About to Disappear and the way that the writer can become a curator of things that are about to be lost or are about to disappear. So, I mean, all of these essays. Um, an essay about dreams, an essay about wonderlands, an essay about lush styles. They all arose from things that had begun to trouble me in one way or another. And so it was kind of like this convergence between like maybe your personal slash spiritual life and your work life as a writer. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I came to feel that craft lectures are just fine uh, for how-to books, but that wasn't the kind of book I wanted to write. I, I wanted to write a book in which craft and personal matters somehow are fused. I wasn't sure if I could do that, um, but it, it, it certainly was my ambition for this book, whether I succeeded or not. Well, something that you say in there, you write, you have an essay about lush styles where you're talking mm-hmm. about a lot about like older books that maybe aren't in fashion anymore, the way that writing used to be and just lushness. And one of the things you say in there is that lush styles communicate the cultural truth that everything is connected And I wonder if that's something that you are seeing more so now because of the age, because of how long you've lived. I mean, obviously, it's also if we're talking about everything is connected, we're also talking about our cultural moment. But that if you could have come to these ideas earlier in life or if your life was somehow leading to this. Well, certainly I began to think about Lush Styles when I was sitting in an airport bar and so, and the song Lush Life came on. Uh, it's, it's a great song. But I was also thinking, since you asked about everything being connected, the way that Lush Styles in literature and maybe elsewhere try to link the present time to the past and bring something that has that is happening in the present and fuses it, sutures it to something that has happened in the past in the same sentence. Uh, and it, it, I think you're right that it's a style that is very demanding and a lot of readers don't want that kind of style anymore but gabriel garcia marquez does it faulkner does it james joyce does it and malcolm lowry all these guys uh and now that i think about it clarice lispector writes in a style in which you can't always tell what's going on either in the present or the past. It could be either one or both. Um, And uh, I'm a great admirer of that kind of writing. I can't do it myself, but I, 
I, I admire it. I think in that essay too, you're also talking a lot about like lush writing, like big descriptions and saying that kind of today people don't really want that. Um, and some of that might be in your inventory where you're talking about inventory is that modern writing avoids inventory description. So like I'm thinking about, you know, Virginia Woolf or even, you know, big, long sweeping novels like like the Russian authors write or Les Miserables that you don't see that much of that anymore. I'm, I'm struggling to think about this because I feel that nothing ever disappears. And uh, for example, I think Hanya Yanagihara has been writing these big books that have sort of epic quality to them. My aunt used to say, nothing is ever gained or lost in the universe. And just when you think the effort to write epic novels has disappeared, somebody comes along and does it all over again. Um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I, I see your, your point, but I also feel that um, the kind of lush writing I'm thinking of arises when people feel, as I do sometimes, that I'm living both in the present and in the past, and, and that simultaneously I'm, I'm trying to negotiate what's going on right now with something in my memory or consciousness that is impinging on me so strongly that I'm in a little bit of a daze. I think writers are often in that kind of daze anyway, from the things that they're imagining. And because the things that they imagine are often from their own history or something that they once saw, writers tend to live in both the present and the past. I, I think it's just part of our nature. Yeah, and I think when we read like that, I don't think it does anymore, but maybe when that, when you're first approaching writing like that, it feels less orderly, but the truth is that's how our brains work, that in one second we're here and then we're in the past and then we're thinking about the future all within the span of like less than a minute. Right. Um, I, you know, I think that it's often the case that if you go into an MFA program and you turn in a piece of fiction to the workshop or to your teacher or supervisor, you're often advised to keep the scene running as long as you can in the present time. And it's a present time scene. Uh, and, and that's all well and good. And it, I think, also arises out of the fact that we all spend a lot of time watching movies and TV shows that are good at sustaining long scenes in the present. Uh, but in the earlier part of the 20th century, the idea was why not intersperse scenes like that with the feeling from the past? And it may be, it may be that we could return to a style of writing like that, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> do you have HBO? I do. So The Staircase, have you seen that? I know about it, but I have not seen it. That is one of the wildest rides between past and present that I've seen in a long time. If you're interested in seeing mm -hmm. how they do it, because mm -hmm. it, it is based on a true story and there's a lot of conjecture in there. Mm -hmm. Some scenes you don't even know they, it is seamless, um, mm -hmm. almost in a, in a jarring way, but I think on purpose between the past and the present, and you're always feeling really dislocated. Um, mm -hmm. don't you think that there's a real hunger among audiences, uh, today for that kind of disorientation? I think there is myself. Yeah, I think it kind of reflects where we are 
right now? Like the world feels really unstable. Yeah. One of the points that I've tried to make in my new book is that literary realism, as we've come to understand it, makes a lot of sense when most people agree about what reality is. Uh, And there's general agreement about what's real and what isn't. But um, realism doesn't make the same kind of sense if you're in a period of history when nobody agrees about what reality is. And I think, I have to say that right now, I don't think there is general agreement about what reality is. Uh, And that's partly because uh, public figures don't want us to pay attention to facts. There's a kind of general uh, acceptance of conspiracies, among other things. And uh, almost a feeling that fantasies are real. And when you have that, I, I think something happens to the way people write fiction. I think that comes up in in two of your essays. One um, was about charismatic figures and the other one was about toxic narratives. And so mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about charisma. I, I tend to think that's probably a newer essay because a lot of it seemed born out of out of Trump in in some on some levels. But you kind of talk about um, and you write it in nine fragments and you you talk about this idea of what makes a charismatic character. They're not just colorful, but they're dynamic and and transformative and they appeal to people who want to be healed and who are hungry for meaning. And you lay out these ideas like that they never tell a story, that they're afflicted with viewing or experiencing the the, the, the person afflicted with viewing or experiencing the charisma is at least as important as the charismatic figure. And you go on to say, you know, they're actors and performers. Can you t- talk a little bit about the genesis of this idea and how you see it playing out in fiction? Um, well, of course, I was thinking about Trump and the effect that he evidently has had on audiences But I also happened to see, since we were talking about HBO, uh, a a series, a documentary series called The Vow, uh, which was about an organization called Nexium. And the guy, uh, Keith Raniere, who was at the head of it. And I thought, well, what is it that gives some of these figures often men, but sometimes women, that gives these figures the kind of power that they have over audiences. And then my next question was, how often do figures like this show up in fiction? And when they do, what do they look like? And how do they behave? So I had a notebook and I started to jot down some of the features I thought were common to to these charismatic figures. And I noticed that in fiction, you can't really make the charismatic figure charismatic to the reader. What you can do, though, is show the effect that the charismatic figure has on his or her audience. I think you really have to be there almost literally have to be there to get the effect of charisma. But in literature, it's not the charisma that's important. It's watching the effect that charisma has on an audience or a group. So uh, the the three examples I used uh, were uh, Ahab and his effect on the crew in Moby Dick and Miss Jean Brody in Muriel Sparks, uh, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, and John Brown in 
the novel The Good Lord Bird, which kind of changes, change. it's by James McBride, came out in what, 2013. And, and that book is an example of charisma used for a good purpose, that is abolition of slavery. In general, I think charisma tends to be somewhat dangerous. But that's, those are the things that got me started on that essay. So when you write about things like that, that are kind of new concepts that have just been maybe bubbling, but come out in an essay. So you're formulating your thoughts to a more structured, understandable meaning to yourself. Do you then go write, try to write fiction that encompasses some of these ideas? No, <laughs> um, I, I don't. I, I think these are matters that preoccupy me, but when I'm writing my own fiction, I don't generally follow the dictates of the essays that I've been working on as far as craft is concerned. And I will say that my last novel, which came out over two years ago, The Sun Collective, has a figure in it named Y, W-Y-E, who has a somewhat charismatic effect on, on the people in The Sun Collective. But as a writer, I found myself largely unable to convey his charisma. I did the best I could. Um, but I'm not as good at it as some of these other writers are. So I guess my answer is yes and no. Um, sometimes I find myself, particularly when I'm rewriting something, using these dribs and drabs of ideas that have gone into my essays, inventories and so on. But certainly when I'm working on a first draft, I'm, I'm just putting down the characters. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get the characters and the themes and the images done on paper any way I can. I'm not, I'm not so much thinking of craft matters. I'm just trying to write. That's something that I think about a lot when I do read craft books and I go back to seventh grade again. I guess a lot of things happened in seventh grade where um, we read To Build a Fire and it was the first time we learned about like man versus nature and all of these literary concepts. And I'm like, well, was the writer really thinking about man versus nature when he wrote that? And when you pick apart all these things like um, you talk about Murakami's novel in Wonderlands that's called 1Q84. And yes. Murakami puts these little people in there. And he said, like, it was totally random, you know, yeah. how I put these in. So I, I guess my question is kind of around when we as writers look back in, in a more analytical way and think about craft and write about craft. We're putting all of this meaning into things, but then there's the creative process. And are these people really thinking, was Shakespeare really thinking about the request moment? And was Shirley Jackson really thinking about a zombie narrative where uh, a tradition is going on where we don't even know why we're doing it anymore, but we still grab our rocks and shoot them at someone. The way I've come to think about this in answer to your question, is that writing workshops and MFA programs are based on a bit of a fallacy. And I say just a bit of a fallacy. And the fallacy is that when we're working on fiction, our minds are almost entirely conscious of the means that we are using to get the stories down on paper. In other words, when you say, is Shakespeare really thinking about, let's say, ambition with Macbeth, or 
in King Lear, uh, is he thinking about inheritance and love and so on? I think the answer is that actually when we are writing, all parts of our minds are engaged in solving the problems that we have set ourselves in in the novel or the story, which means that, yes, there is a conscious part of your mind that is at work on the story, but there is an equal part of your mind that you're in some sense not as aware of that is also trying to solve the problems that you have set up for yourself in telling a particular story. and. For me, that's the part of the mind that gives us dreams. It's the part of the mind that, let's say you're, you're at a party and you see somebody at the party and you say, I know who that is, but I can't remember that person's name. And your mind goes to work trying to remember the person's name. But you, yourself, are not conscious of how the mind is trying to retrieve that name. The mind is doing it somehow, but I don't think anybody has ever satisfactorily described how the mind goes about retrieving things. And I don't think the mind, I don't think anybody has really been able to say how the mind goes about writing a story uh, in which both your conscious intentions and your unconscious intentions are collaborating. Uh, So that Murakami has been asked, well, what are the little people doing in in your novel? And Murakami has to answer, I don't know. I don't know. They came to me. How did they come to you? I don't know. But when I was writing, they were there. And composers and painters will say very similar things. Why is that tune interrupting your sonata? I don't know. It just came to me. (laughs) So, um, yes, the writer is thinking, but all of the parts of the writer's mind, all the parts of the mind are at work. I, I once heard Mike Nichols talking about directing a film, and, and Nichols said, the remarkable thing about making a movie is that both your conscious and your unconscious intentions go into the making of it, and you often don't realize what you've put into the film until it's made and you see, oh, there's that thing that I was thinking of, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. He talks about the shot at the end of The Graduate, where uh, Catherine Ross and Dustin Hoffman are sitting at the back of a bus and they're looking scared and upset. And he said, I didn't realize that they were looking that way because I had gotten angry at them before that shot was taken. And, you know, there's no way you can plan on these effects. They happen. They happen, which is why I think when you're writing, you have to give your mind, you have to give yourself a lot of permission to dream, to dream on the page, to let the craziness out. If the craziness wants to get out, you have to let it out. It's going to be the most genuine part of the writing that you do. Yeah, and I think that's what's so beautiful about art is that it's never perfect. Totally, right, right. Why should it be? Life isn't perfect. I mean, I do think there's some works of art. You look at them, you listen to them, you see them, and you think there there isn't a single mistake in that work. But I think the artist would say, are you kidding? Of course, there's 
there's something if I had to do it all over again, I'd, I'd do it in a different way. You mentioned earlier disappearance, like things disappearing. You have a, mm-hmm. a an essay about that. And I I walked away from this book if I had to characterize it, which is hard because they're all different kinds of essays, but that a through line, at least one, is loss in general. And I'm wondering your reaction to that. And yeah, it's a loss in fiction, but it's just, there's so much loss in there. Yeah. What do I think about this? I, I think that as you grow older, you're conscious of the things that you have gained, but you're also very conscious of things that you lose, objects that you lose, memories that you lose, friends and loved ones who aren't there anymore. You, you think about these things. I, I'm 75 years old, and I'm writing about loss because these things have become very important to me. Uh, the, the people, the ideas, the memories, the objects that were once in my life and aren't there anymore. The great thing about fiction is that it's one place where you can retrieve some of those very things that you've lost. The, the person who's not in your life anymore, either because that person has died or has disappeared from your life, you can bring that person back or one or another feature of that person. So yes, I, I think about loss, but I also I, I try to think about a kind of compensatory gain. Isn't there somebody's book called Real Losses, Imaginary Gains? There should be a book with that title, even if there isn't, because I think that's very often the process of art, real losses and imaginary gains. Do you think that nostalgia is a precursor to loss? I, it, it may be. Nostalgia is tricky because as an emotion, nostalgia tells you that things were better then than they are now. Uh, and that suggests a kind of sentimental attachment to uh, a world that may not have existed. Uh, I, I, I don't want my teenage years back, and if you gave them to me, I'd say, take, take them away. I don't want to be a teenager anymore. I don't, I don't want to be in my 20s. God knows I don't want to be in my 20s. Um, and, and I think, generally speaking, nostalgia has to be resisted. Uh, but I don't think memory has to be resisted. I, I think um, as, as long as you don't falsify what the past was and what it had, and as long as you don't idealize it over the present, um, you're in business. I'm trying to think of that Tobias Wolf story where he's in the bank and it's getting robbed. A bullet in the brain. Bullet in the brain and his last moments where he's thinking about his childhood playing baseball. Do you think that's nostalgia or loss or something else? It's a wonderful story. And and the guy who is being shot remembers a line. I don't know if you do you remember the line? It's It's another guy on the team who says shortstop is the best position there is. And I don't think that's nostalgia. I think it's just a precious memory. Uh, shortstop is the best position there is. Um, it's a beautiful line. Uh, and uh, I, I, it, it's not so different from what Wordsworth called spots of time. Uh, and, you know, Virginia Woolf's fiction is full of moments like this, where it's almost as if time seems to stop. And something, maybe something somebody has said, 
or an action somebody has taken just is luminous and illuminating. And uh, I think a lot of art tries to create spots of time like that. Uh, it doesn't feel like nostalgia to me so much as a capturing of something that's beautiful. One of the things I noticed from some of these essays in your personal life is that you seem to write a lot of letters to people. Yeah, I do. It's true. <laughs> and what do you get out of that? Con it's conversation. It's conversation. When you're writing a letter to someone, I think, of course, you're going on about what you're thinking, what you're experiencing, but you're, you're also conversing with someone having a conversation in your head with that person whom you like or whom you love. And I, I used to love writing letters. I wrote a lot of letters. Um, and I think to some degree, um, email still fill, fills that role, but um, it's rare for an email message to have the feeling that letters once did. I don't know why, but they don't. They, they, they seem more abrupt to me, less, less emotional than, than letters once did. And I hope I'm not sounding nostalgic <laughs> about this. Is there anything else about the book you want to talk about that we didn't? Um, only, only to say that in the midst of all of these essays on craft, which are also to some degree autobiographical, I had two essays, one about a rollover accident that I was once in, and another about what I would call the dark nights of the soul that writers often experience, particularly when they're trying to get a foothold in the world of letters and they're getting nothing but rejection slips, often in my case, nasty re rejection slips. And you have to get through that period somehow or other. And that essay is about how I barely managed to get through it. Um, those are the only two things that I think I'd want to add. Yeah, you had a very mean editor when you sent her your first novel. And she was saying to you, tell me why I hated your novel. Like almost yeah, it repeating a, it to you. It was an amazing moment. Um, I, I had, actually, she was an agent. I, um, and, and this is now for almost 50 years ago. Uh, I had landed this agent and I had sent her um, a new, I think it was a new novel. It may have been a revision, but I think it was a new novel. And she didn't call and didn't call. And so finally I called her and stupidly I asked her where she thought she was going to send it out, Scribner's Knopf, wherever. And she said, don't you want to know what I thought of your novel? And I said, sure. And she said, I hated it. It was a long pause. And I said, you hated it? She said, yeah, I hated it. Tell me why I hated it. I said, Julia, I don't know why you hated it. Oh, she said, yeah, you're the imaginative one. Was it the plot, the characters? Tell me why I hated your novel. She, she just wanted to prolong this. It was torture. Um, and I, I, I won't say that every young writer goes through something like that, but I think young writers very often have moments where they feel as if they, they're being tortured. So do you have any words of wisdom for how you keep going? Uh, beer and pizza and stubbornness, a refusal to give up 
and the recognition that nobody asked you to do this. You brought it on yourself. And if you brought it on yourself, uh, you can decide whether you're going to continue to do it or whether you're going to devote your energies to something else. So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'd be happy to. You know, I was thinking about this, and I, I had an idea of where our discussion might go. So I found a passage in John or J.M. Coetzee's The Master of Petersburg, which is about Dostoevsky. And there's a passage in which Coetzee has Dostoevsky thinking about writing and writers. There is something overwhelmingly important. He, this is Dostoevsky. There's something overwhelmingly important. He wants to say that the boy will now never be able to hear. If you are blessed with the power to write, he wants to say, bear in mind the source of that power. You write because your childhood was lonely, because you were not loved. Yet that is not the full story, he also wants to say. You were loved. You would have been loved. It was your choice to be unloved. What confusion an ape on a harmonium would do better. We do not write out of plenty, he wants to say. We write out of anguish, out of lack. Surely in your heart, you must know that. As for your so-called true father and his revolutionary sympathies, what nonsense. Isaiah was a clerk, a pen pusher. If he had lived, if you had followed him, you too would have become nothing but a clerk, and you would not have left this story behind. See the master of Petersburg. Do you want to say anything else about that? About that, only that it's a beautiful novel. It really gets you into the mind of, of Dostoevsky. I, I know people who know much more about Dostoevsky than I do, who will say, well, that novel is full of um, inaccuracies. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about the uh, how inaccurate it is. It does give you a sense of what it's like to be a writer. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes, and it's related to what I just read. This is from the essay on the plausibility of dreams. The great schoolboy has a prominent overbite with what used to be called buck teeth, a malady that inspires a great deal of teasing against him by his classmates. He is clumsy and is usually chosen last to be on any particular team. He lives out in the middle of nowhere on a sort of hobby farm with his stepfather and his mother. He feels solitary. The world, in short, is a deeply unwelcoming place. To quote the German writer Christa Wolf, whose books he will read many years later, there is no place on earth where he is welcome. All this changes when the boy turns 15. He discovers a novel, quite by accident, a paperback for sale for 50 cents in a drugstore in Excelsior, Minnesota. The book is called The Night of the Hunter by a West Virginia author named Davis Grubb. The boy, who is me, reads the novel a highly lyrical nightmare about losing a father and gaining a stepfather, and nothing in his life has ever felt to be as true as this book. When he finally sees the movie version starring Robert Mitchum and directed by Charles Lawton, his feeling is reinforced. This story, this dream, 
he thinks, however frightening it may be, is my true home. I could have dreamed this story myself. You have to believe me when I say that reading this lyrically nightmarish novel was a great relief to me, a kind of recognition and a portal to a new world. Is there anything else you'd want to say? Only that um, sometimes writing comes upon you completely by accident. You find a book, you're walking in the library, a book falls off the shelf in front of you. That book wants you to read it. (laughs) There are times in your life when, for some very strange reasons, a, a, a book somehow gets in front of you. And again, I think sometimes by accident. And it's as if in the nature of things, you're supposed to read it. Fate has put that book in front of you. And that's the way I feel about reading The Night of the Hunter when I was 15 years old. Uh, That book changed my life. It's probably not a great novel, but it's almost a great novel. Uh, And... um, it wanted me to read it. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you write? Um, I write uh, in this room, uh, which is my study, with all of these books behind me and a window uh, that looks out on some trees and a tennis court. I, I really need uh natural light i found that i i could not write in a room with with only um light bulbs i i i i need to be able to look out at something do you play tennis when you get frustrated no i used to (laughs) i used to play tennis but not not anymore what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing uh there's a park near by my building here in Minneapolis, it's Loring Park. Uh, There's a pond in the middle of Loring Park and people that go there and feed the ducks and the geese and the squirrels, which have become very belligerent. The squirrels come right up to you uh, demanding demanding food. And and so, yeah, I, I go for a walk in the park or I go for a walk in downtown Minneapolis and, and just let my mind go free. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? If I have just finished a novel, which I have, I finished a draft, I show it to uh, my agent. I show it to my friend Pua. I show it to a writer friend who lives in Fort Collins. I'll mention his name, Stephen Schwartz, and one or two other people, but no more than than half a dozen people. You don't want too many opinions. How have you dealt with rejection? Sometimes with difficulty, stubbornness, a refusal to give up. As I said before, beer and pizza, the reassurances from people I love and who seem to have loved me. And the feeling that if something hasn't worked that I've tried to do, I've always had the belief, the faith that something eventually will work. What is your favorite word? You know, I've been on your show before, and I think in the past I may have said love or blue. I think this time I would say grace. Thank you so much for the three-peat. I'm so appreciative. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. If you like today's show with Charles Baxter, author of the craft book Wonderlands, Essays on the Life of Literature, check out my two previous interviews with Charles Baxter, where we talked about his novel, The Sun Collective, and his short story collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. 
You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.